0: Chapter 5 of The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Anthony Ogus The Feast of Fear At first the large stone stair seemed to Syme as deserted as a pyramid But before he reached the top he had realised that there was a man leaning over the parapet of the embankment and looking out across the river as a figure he was quite conventional clad in a silk hat and frock coat of the more formal type of fashion he had a red flower in his buttonhole as Syme drew nearer to him step by step he did not even move a hair and Syme could come close enough to notice even in the dim pale morning light that his face was long pale and intellectual and ended in a small triangular tuft of dark beard, at the very point of the chin, all else being clean-shaven. This scrap of hair almost seemed a mere oversight. The rest of the face was of the type that is best shaven, clear-cut, ascetic, and in its way noble. Syme drew closer and closer, noting all this, and still the figure did not stir. At first an instinct had told Syme that this was the man whom he was meant to meet. Then, seeing that the man made no sign, he had concluded that he was not. And now again he had come back to a certainty that the man had something to do with his mad adventure. For the man remained more still than would have been natural if a stranger had come so close. He was as motionless as a waxwork and got on the nerves somewhat in the same way. Syme looked again and again at the pale, dignified and delicate face, and the face still looked blankly across the river. Then he took out of his pocket the note from Buttons proving his election, and put it before that sad and beautiful face. Then the man smiled, and his smile was a shock, for it was all on one side, going up in the right cheek and down in the left. There was nothing, rationally speaking, to scare anyone about this. Many people have this nervous trick of a crooked smile, and in many it is even attractive. But in all time's circumstances, with the dark dawn and the deadly errand and the lowliness on the great dripping stones, there was something unnerving in it. There was the silent river and the silent man, a man of even classic face, and there was the last nightmare touch that his smile suddenly went wrong. The spasm of smile was instantaneous, and the man's face dropped at once into its harmonious melancholy. He spoke without further explanation or inquiry, like a man speaking to an old colleague. If we walk up towards Leicester Square, he said, we shall just be in time for breakfast. Sunday always insists on an early breakfast. Have you had any sleep? No, said Simon. Nor have I, answered the man in an ordinary tone. I shall try to get to bed after breakfast. He spoke with casual civility but in an utterly dead voice that contradicted the fanaticism of his face. It seemed almost as if all friendly words were to him lifeless conveniences, and that his only life was hate. After a pause, the man spoke again. Of course, the secretary of the branch told you everything that can be told, but the one thing that can never be told is the last notion of the president, for his notions grow like a tropical forest. So in case you don't know, I'd better tell you that he is carrying out his notion of concealing ourselves by not concealing ourselves to the most extraordinary lengths just now. Originally, of course, we met in a cell underground, just as your branch does. Then Sunday made us take a private room at an ordinary restaurant. He said that if you didn't seem to be hiding, nobody hunted you out. Well, he is the only man on earth I know, but sometimes I really think that his huge brain is going a little mad in its old age. For now we flaunt ourselves before the public. We have our breakfast on a balcony, on a balcony if you please, overlooking Leicester Square. And what do the people say? asked Syme. "'It's quite simple what they say,' answered his guide. "'They say we're a lot of jolly gentlemen who pretend they're anarchists.' "'It seems to me a very clever idea,' said Syme. "'Clever? God blast your impudence! Clever!' cried out the other in a sudden shrill voice, which was as startling and discordant as his crooked smile. "'When you've seen Sunday for a split second, you'll leave off calling him clever.' With this they emerged out of a narrow street and saw the early sunlight filling Leicester Square. It will never be known, I suppose, why this square itself should look so alien and in some ways so continental. It will never be known whether it was the foreign look that attracted the foreigners or the foreigners who gave it the foreign look. But on this particular morning the effect seemed singularly bright and clear. Between the open square and the sunlit leaves, and the statue and the Saracenic outlines of the Alhambra, it looked the replica of some French or even Spanish public place. And this effect increased in sime the sensation, which in many shapes he had had through the whole adventure, the eerie sensation of having strayed into a new world. As a fact, he had bought bad cigars round Leicester Square ever since he was a boy, but as he turned that corner and saw the trees and the Moorish cupolas, he could have sworn that he was turning into an unknown to something, or other, in some foreign town. At one corner of the square there projected a kind of angle of a prosperous but quiet hotel, the bulk of which belonged to a street behind. In the wall there was one large French window, probably the window of a large coffee-room, and outside this window, almost literally overhanging the square, was a formidably buttressed balcony, big enough to contain a dining table. In fact it did contain a dining table, or more strictly a breakfast table, and round the breakfast table, glowing in the sunlight and evident to the street, were a group of noisy and talkative men, all dressed in the insolence of fashion, with white waistcoats and expensive buttonholes. Some of their jokes could almost be heard across the square. Then the grave secretary gave his unnatural smile and Syme knew that this boisterous breakfast party was the secret conclave of the European dynamiters. Then, as Syme continued to stare at them, he saw something that he had not seen before. He had not seen it literally because it was too large to see. At the nearest end of the balcony, blocking up a great part of the perspective, was the back of a great mountain of a man. When Simon had seen him, his first thought was that the weight of him must break down the balcony of stone. His vastness did not lie only in the fact that he was abnormally tall, and quite incredibly fat this man was planned enormously in his original proportions like a statue carved deliberately as colossal his head crowned with white hair as seen from behind looked bigger than a head ought to be the ears that stood out from it looked larger than human ears he was enlarged terribly to scale and this sense of size was so staggering that when Syme saw him all the other figures seemed quite suddenly to dwindle and become dwarfish. They were still sitting there as before with their flowers and frock coats, but now it looked as if the big man was entertaining five children to tea. As Syme and the guide approached the side door of the hotel, a waiter came out smiling with every tooth in his head the gentlemen are up there sir he said they do talk and they do laugh at what they talk they do say they will throw bombs at the king and the waiter hurried away with a napkin over his arm much pleased with the singular frivolity of the gentlemen upstairs the two men mounted the stairs in silence sime had never thought of asking whether the monstrous man who almost filled and broke the balcony was the great president of whom the others stood in awe he knew it was so with an unaccountable but instantaneous certainty sime indeed was one of those men who are open to all the more nameless psychological influences in a degree a little dangerous to mental health utterly devoid of fear in physical dangers He was a great deal too sensitive to the smell of spiritual evil twice already that night little unmeaning things had peeped out at him almost prurently and given him a sense of drawing nearer and nearer to the headquarters of hell and this sense became overpowering as he drew nearer to the great president the form it took was a childish and yet hateful fancy As he walked across the inner room towards the balcony, the large face of Sunday grew larger and larger, and Syme was gripped with a fear that when he was quite close, the face would be too big to be possible, and that he would scream aloud. He remembered that as a child he would not look at the mask of Memnon in the British Museum, because it was a face, and so large. By an effort braver than that of leaping over a cliff, he went to an empty seat at the breakfast table and sat down. The men greeted him with good-humoured raillery, as if they had always known him. He sobered himself a little by looking at their conventional coats and solid shining coffee-pot. Then he looked again at Sunday. His face was very large, but it was still possible to humanity. In the presence of the President, the whole company looked sufficiently commonplace. Nothing about them caught the eye at first, except that, by the President's caprice, they had been dressed up with a festive respectability, which gave the meal the look of a wedding breakfast. One man, indeed, stood out at even a superficial glance. He, at least, was the common or garden dynamiter. He wore, indeed, the high white collar and satin tie that were the uniform of the occasion. But out of this collar there sprang a head quite unmanageable and quite unmistakable, a bewildering bush of brown hair and beard that almost obscured the eyes like those of a sky terrier. But the eyes did look out of the tangle, and they were the sad eyes of some Russian serf. The effect of this figure was not terrible, like that of the President, but it had every diablerie that can come from the utterly grotesque. If out of that stiff tie and collar there had come abruptly the head of a cat or a dog, it could not have been a more idiotic contrast. The man's name, it seemed, was Gogol. He was a Pole, and in this circle of days he was called Tuesday. His soul and speech were incurably tragic. He could not force himself to play the prosperous and frivolous part demanded of him by President Sunday. And indeed, when Syme came in, the President, with that daring disregard of public suspicion, which was his policy, was actually chaffing Gogol upon his inability to assume conventional graces. Our friend Tuesday, said the President in a deep voice, at once of quietude and volume. Our friend Tuesday doesn't seem to grasp the idea. He dresses up like a gentleman, but he seems to be too great a soul to behave like one. He insists on the ways of the stage conspirator. Now, if a gentleman goes about London in a top hat and a frock coat, no one need know that he is an anarchist. "'but if a gentleman puts on a top hat and a frock coat "'and then goes about on his hands and knees, "'well, he may attract attention. "'That's what Brother Gogol does. "'He goes about on his hands and knees "'with such inexhaustible diplomacy "'that by this time he finds it quite difficult to walk upright. "'I am not good at concealment,' said Gogol sulkily "'with a thick foreign accent.' I am not ashamed of the cause. Yes, you are, my boy, and so is the cause of you, said the President good-naturedly. You hide as much as anybody, but you can't do it, you see. You're such an ass. You try to combine two inconsistent methods. When a householder finds a man under his bed, he will probably pause to note the circumstance. But if he finds a man under his bed in a top hat, you will agree with me, my dear Tuesday, that he is not likely even to forget it. Now when you were found under Admiral Biffin's bed, I am not good at deception, said Tuesday, gloomily flushing. Ride, my boy, ride, said the President, with a ponderous heartiness. You aren't good at anything. While this stream of conversation continued, Syme was looking more steadily at the men around him. As he did so, he gradually felt all his sense of something spiritually queer return. He had thought at first that they were all of common stature and costume, with the evident exception of the hairy goggle. But as he looked at the others, he began to see in each of them exactly what he had seen in the man by the river, a demoniac detail somewhere. That lopsided laugh which would suddenly disfigure the fine face of his original guide was typical of all these types. Each man had something about him, perceived perhaps at the tenth or twentieth glance, which was not normal and which seemed hardly human. The only metaphor he could think of was this, that they all looked as men of fashion and presence would look, with the additional twist given in a false and curved mirror. Only the individual examples will express this half-concealed eccentricity. Syme's original Cicerone bore the title of Monday. He was the secretary of the council, and his twisted smile was regarded with more terror than anything, except the president's horrible, happy laughter. But now that Syme had more space and light to observe him, there were other touches. His fine face was so emaciated that Syme thought it must be wasted with some disease. Yet somehow the very distress of his dark eyes denied this. It was no physical ill that troubled him. His eyes were alive with intellectual torture, as if pure thought was pain. He was typical of each of the tribe. Each man was subtly and differently wrong next to him sat tuesday the tousle headed gogol a man more obviously mad next was wednesday a certain marquis de saint eustache a sufficiently characteristic figure the first few glances found nothing unusual about him except that he was the only man at table who wore the fashionable clothes as if they were really his own he had a black french beard cut square and a black English frock coat cut even squarer but Syme sensitive to such things felt somehow that the man carried a rich atmosphere with him a rich atmosphere that suffocated it reminded one irrationally of drowsy odours and of dying lamps in the darker poems of Byron and Pope with this went a sense of his being clad not in lighter colours but in softer materials his black seemed richer and warmer than the black shades about him, as if it were compounded a profound colour. His black coat looked as if it were only black by being too dense a purple. His black beard looked as if it were only black by being too deep a blue. And in the gloom and thickness of the beard, his dark red mouth showed sensual and scornful. Whatever he was, he was not a Frenchman. He might be a Jew. He might be something deeper yet in the dark heart of the East. In the bright-coloured Persian tiles and pictures showing tyrants hunting, you may see just those almond eyes, those blue-black beards, those cruel crimson lips. Then came Syme, and next a very old man, Professor de Vorms, who still kept the chair of Friday, though every day it was expected that his death would leave it empty. Save for his intellect, he was in the last dissolution of senile decay. His face was as grey as his long grey beard, his forehead was lifted and fixed finally in a furrow of mild despair. In no other case, not even that of Gogol, did the bridegroom brilliancy of the morning dress express a more painful contrast for the red flower in his buttonhole showed up against a face that was literally discoloured like lead. The whole hideous effect was as if some drunken dandies had put their clothes upon a corpse. When he rose or sat down, which was with long labour and peril, something worse was expressed than mere weakness, something indefinably connected with the horror of the whole scene. It did not express decrepitude merely, but corruption. Another hateful fancy crossed Syme's quivering mind. He could not help thinking that whenever the man moved, a leg or arm might fall off. Right at the end sat the man called Saturday, the simplest and the most baffling of all. He was a short, square man with a dark, square face, clean-shaven, a medical practitioner going by the name of Bull. He had that combination of savoir-faire with a sort of well-groomed coarseness which is not uncommon in young doctors. He carried his fine clothes with confidence rather than ease and he mostly wore a set smile. There was nothing whatever odd about him except that he wore a pair of dark, almost opaque spectacles. It may have been merely a crescendo of nervous fancy that had gone before, but those black discs were dreadful to Syme. They reminded him of half-remembered ugly tales, of some story about pennies being put on the eyes of the dead. Syme's eye always caught the black glasses and the blind grin. Had the dying professor warned them, or even the pale secretary, they would have been appropriate but on the younger and grosser man they seemed only an enigma. They took away the key of the face. You could not tell what his smile or his gravity meant. Partly from this and partly because he had a vulgar virility wanting in most of the others, it seemed to Syme that he might be the wickedest of all those wicked men. Syme even had the thought that his eyes might be covered up because they were too frightful to see. End of chapter 5